Acts chapter 3 is where we are, so if you can open up to there, that would be great. If you guys remember, we ended Acts chapter 2 learning last week about how they were all one in heart and mind. Do you remember that? That the disciples, all the believers were one in heart and mind. And one thing I taught last week was that the word mind in Greek comes, we get our word psyche from it. What it actually means is life. They were one in heart and one in life. Think about that for a second. It means they didn't just agree on all their opinions. That, that never happens, right? We can't all just always all agree on opinions, but we can all be one life focused on Christ. If we keep Christ at the center, and not all this other stuff, but Christ himself, right? If we keep him at the center, we can be one around him. Does that make sense? And they were one, one in heart and one in mind or one in life around Christ. All right. So now we're going to look at some really cool stuff that happens over the next few chapters. Amazing displays, as I titled it, of Christ's power and his authority. Okay, here on earth. If you remember, um, leading up into the book of Acts, Jesus' life was full of miracles. Right? And it says, Acts chapter 2 Peter's given his sermon, and here's what he says. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. In other words, these acts, these amazing miracles that Jesus did, accredited him to them. In other words, proved to the people that he was who he said he was. He's the son of God. And there should be no doubt, when when you raise somebody from the dead like Lazarus, All doubt should be removed that he is who he says he is. When he feeds thousands of people with just a couple loaves of bread and, and, you know, a couple fish, again, it's, it's proof that he is who he says he is. So miracles served that purpose for Jesus. It, it showed the people that what he's saying about himself, it's true. Okay. That's what the miracles did. Well, Jesus continues doing miracles, but he does them through his people, through his disciples, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So go with me to Acts chapter three. Verse 1, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Okay, so Peter and John are heading to the temple for prayer. That was not unusual for them to do. Why? Because they were still Jewish, right? We have to remember that all the early Christians were still Jewish, and they still practiced their Jewish customs like going to the temple to pray. The temple was still their place of worship. And so it would have been very common for the disciples to go up every day to pray at the temple. So Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray like they always do. If you remember, actually in Acts chapter 2, 4, it says this, every day they, the disciples, the apostles, and the other believers continued to meet together in the temple courts. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. That's where they would join together. Again, they're Jewish right? In Luke 24, verse verse 53, it says that they gather daily, right? Daily to worship in the temple. So this is what the disciples would do often, okay? Every day. So for Peter and John to be going up there to pray, that was just normal, okay? And they still held the temple in high regard. Again, I think I talked about this last week. Yes, they accepted Jesus, but their lives were still kind of wrapped up in their identity as Jews, for their entire life, it's, it's been based around their faith. That's, that's how the Jewish faith is, was, and it is still for some people. 
But back then, especially, everything was wrapped up in their faith. And so for them just to stop going to the temple or to stop doing certain things, it would be hard for them. So they just continued, okay? They continued doing that. Okay, Acts 3, 2. Let's go to the next verse. So, So we have Peter and John going up to pray. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. So the verse says he was laid daily. Every day, this man was placed at the gate. Now, this gate was called the beautiful gate. And I want to talk about the beautiful gate just because I found it interesting. (laughs) Just so we can understand the majesty of what was actually at the temple. So the beautiful gate, um, I think I have a picture of of a Jewish historian. His name was uh, Josephus. It's Flavius Josephus. Um, He lived 36 to 180. So he's a contemporary of the apostles. He lived this at, during the same time as the apostles, okay? And he was a historian, and he wrote about the beautiful gate, because there's a lot of historians now who disagree about which gate is the beautiful gate that he was talking to, but I want to read this from him. This is what uh, Josephus wrote he, in his writings. He said, now nine of these gates, he's talking about the gates that are surrounding, he says, nine of these gates on every side, they were covered with gold or silver, Right? As were the jams of the doors and lintels. Just think about that, how beautiful that would look. All these doors covered in gold and silver. But there was one gate, he said. There was one gate without the holy house, so on the inward court of the holy house. And he says it was covered in Corinthian brass. This entire gate was covered in brass, this ornate brass. And it greatly excelled all the other doors that were covered only with silver and gold. Each gate had two doors, so you have this gate, right? It has two doors, whose height, now listen to this, was several 30 cubits and their breadth 15. So what that is is these gates were about 70 feet tall. Now, that's taller than this ceiling, right? So 70 feet in height, if you can picture that. It's insane. And they were about anywhere between 20 to 30 feet wide, the doors, So these doors would fill this sanctuary easily, width and height, covered in brass. You would walk up to these doors and just be amazed. I don't know if there's anything in the world right now that is that size as as far as a door goes. Incredible. So they called it the beautiful gate. I think that's a pretty accurate description, I think. So anyways, that's just a side note. I just thought it was pretty cool. I, I think it'll be amazing if we could see what the temple looked like in all of its glory at one point. Anyway, uh, let's continue on. So this man was laid at that gate. You can picture that gate, huge and beautiful, this man in his lowly state, estate laying there. And he was there for anywhere between, what, 30 and 40 years? I mean, they'd laid him there daily. Maybe they started when he was in his young teens or, you know, and laid him there every day. You know what that means? It means that at some point, Jesus probably walked by him. I mean, I would assume Jesus was at the temple quite often, walking by the temple. So Jesus probably walked by him. The disciples prayed every day. They went to the temple courts every day to worship and pray. You know what that means? They probably saw him every day. But he was never healed at any of those points. (laughs) Why? And it makes me think about this. It makes me think about the importance of following the leading of the Spirit of God. Just because somebody's crippled, does that mean that God wants to heal that person immediately right then and there? 
Obviously not. If that was the case, Jesus or the disciples had plenty of opportunities to heal this guy. But they, they didn't. They waited until this moment, until this day, with the people that would be around in that situation, that he would be healed. And if you remember, Jesus said something kind of similar to this when there was a guy who was blind from birth, and the disciples asked, was he born blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus said, neither, but it was for the glory of God, because he was going to heal him on a certain day in front of certain people, and God would be glorified. And the same thing's happening right here. So... Let's go to Acts 3, verse 3 through 5 now. Okay, so here's this man. He's laying there. Peter and John, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Now, I want to think about this man for a minute. This man has been that way for 40 years of his life. All he knows is to beg for alms. Do you think he ever asked for anything other than alms? Money? I don't think so. I think in his head, the only thing he's ever asked for is money. I just need, I need to survive and I need help, so can you please give me money? Because why would it ever enter into his mind to ask for something else, right? And it makes me think about us. I, I was praying about this section, this verse, and I was like, How many of us get to a certain place in our life where we stop or don't even think of asking God to move in a certain way? Like, because because of our situation, we're like, well, it's who I am, and I'm I'm just always going to be this way, so God, will you just help me out with, like, like, begging for little things, like alms, like just a little bit of money. But we don't, we forget who God is. We forget that he's the God of miracles, that he's the God who can do anything he wants to. He has the ability to raise the dead and to change situations. Do we stop asking God for these miraculous things because we just resigned ourselves to live? Well, it's just, I guess that's my life. That's how I'm going to have to be. And I think he was there. He had no other reason not to be. And here's another thing. I just want us to ask, just for a minute, Do we believe that God can do amazing things? Do you believe that? Are you going through something in your life right now where you just don't even ask God because you don't think it'll happen? It's like, nah, it's impossible. It just won't happen. I think our God gets all psyched up when we go to him with huge requests, I think. And we go believing, saying, God, I know you're God. I know you can do this. Doesn't mean he'll do it. No, we don't know what he's going to do. But does, do we, should we have the faith to believe that he can do it? Yes. So let's go back to the story. So this beggar, like many beggars, he was used to people just walking right by him. You guys know it. We, we drive by people who are begging all the time. When we lived in Mexico, there are tons of people who are poor and they're crippled. And you, you, you get so overwhelmed because what can you do? You can't help everybody, right? So at some point, you kind of stop looking, don't you? You pull up in your car, someone's there, and you just kind of like don't look at him, or maybe you look at him for a second, then you look away. Um, but either way, this guy, he'd been there for 40 years. I guarantee you, he got used to people just walking right by, thousands of people walking by. So for someone to stop and to say, hello, first of all, to talk to him, that would be huge. Actually, even to notice him, to look at him, and he looks at them, and they, and they say, look at us, and they're communicating with him. I think his heart would have been like, wow, these people are talking to me. 
And Peter, he doesn't just talk to him or give him something. He says, look at us, because he's about to do something that this guy can't even imagine. In his mind, there's no way he could even be thinking about what's about to happen. So we go to verse 6 and 7. Peter says, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. That may seem like a bold statement. I don't know when you read that and you read the book of Acts and you get to that part and you're like, wow, Peter, you just, you just went for it. You just told this guy, be healed, stand up and walk. That's bold. That's bold. Now, here's the thing. I don't know if this was Peter's first miracle or not. It doesn't say. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. The Bible's not clear. But here's what we do know. Remember in Acts 2.43, they were doing all these, it says, and awe, this is before this, in, in Acts chapter 2, so we're in the chapter before, it says, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So I have to assume that this was not the first miracle, because it says many signs and wonders were being done. I'm thinking that the apostles had a lot of boldness happening right now, confidence. And so when Peter and John were walking up and they saw this, the guy, they're like, because led by the Spirit of God said, get up and walk. The Spirit led them to say that to him. And they had no doubt that he was going to get up and walk. No doubt. One thing I also want to point out right here, and I think this is important for all of us to know. Every time you read Peter doing a miracle, he always says, in the name of Of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It reminds me of a verse out of Colossians. You might want to make a note of it. Colossians chapter 3.17. I would write this down. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's the verse. And I wrote this way, Jesus is given the glory. Everything we do, you guys, is in the name of Jesus. And it's not just that the name of Jesus is like this magical uh, potion that you throw out there, and in the name of Jesus, and then things happen. That's That's not at all what it is. It's you recognizing that you are nothing. I am nothing. Peter recognizes it. He'll say it in a little bit. He'll say, why are you looking at us like we did this? He recognizes I'm nobody, but Jesus is somebody. He's powerful, and Jesus can raise that guy up like that in the name of Jesus. But guys, whatever we do, when we love our kids, when we're at work or when we're doing anything, do it in the name of Jesus. It'll change your mindset, first of all, because it makes you humble. It's not about you. It's not about how awesome you are, how awesome I am. It's just Jesus, okay? We empty ourselves of ourselves. We fill ourselves with Jesus, amen? Okay. So Peter takes him by the hand, and Luke, being a doctor, (laughs) points out that his feet and his ankles were made strong. Luke would have noticed that kind of stuff, right? Luke points that out, because Luke's aware. This guy's been crippled since he was born. What do you think his legs look like? Small, skinny, and his joints would not have been strong. Their tendons, everything else would be weak. And he heals him. And so Luke, being the doctor, says not only was his feet made strong, the ankle bones were made strong. He tightened them up. 
right? Those tendons and ligaments and everything else, he tightened them up. And then think about the muscle that had to get put onto the legs for him to get up and jump up and start walking. And think about the miracle that had to happen in the guy's brain. Do you know how to walk just because you can walk? Or do you learn how to walk, right? Usually you learn. We, we teach babies and you see them crawling and then they wobble their way around, right? I don't think this guy wobbled. <laughs> I think he jumped up. It says he jumped up and he ran around. In fact, we're going to read that. Let's go there. Let's go there. Verse 8. And leaping up, he didn't slowly get up and, oh, man, I'm tight and I'm sore and my legs and all. He jumped. He leaped and he stood and he began to walk and he entered the temple walking and leaping and praising God. Guys, this happened immediately. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that this was a miracle from God. It didn't take rehab. It didn't, nothing else. It was just Instant, instantaneous. There was no shadow of a doubt who did this. And that's why in verses 9 through 11, let's go there. Verses 9 through 11. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him because he was there for 40 years. They knew this guy. I'm sure they knew him by name. And they recognized him as the one who sat by the beautiful gate at the temple and asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded as we all would be, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So they were just like, I, did you see him? And I remember him, and he's standing, and look at his legs. Look at him. Amazed. So... These next few verses that we're going to read, I mentioned them already a little bit, is the key to understanding miracles. Okay? It's the key to understanding miracles and the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so let's go to verse 12. So all these people are gathering, right? All these people are coming around wanting to see. We would all be there. We'd all be the guys pushing and trying to get our way to see this guy. And so Peter sees this scene happening, and here's what he says. And Peter saw it, this gathering, hearing the words of the people, and he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why are you staring at us as though by our own power or piety, or in other words, godliness, we made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be granted to you. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. Those are hard words. Peter is preaching at him. Through the Spirit, conviction to the heart, you are responsible for the death of Jesus. We are all responsible for the death of Jesus. But he goes on. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and by his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. What an important statement Peter made. 
It's not by our power or by our godliness that any of this has happened. It was by Jesus and faith in him and in his name and through the power of this Holy Spirit that this man is now up and walking. There are some of us who get it wrong, that we think it's, it's if I was just holy enough, if I, if I just you know, followed God close enough and did all the right things, then maybe, maybe I would have the power to go do this and that, and, but I'll never be like that. That's not how it works. That's why Peter said it's not by our power or by our godliness, it's by Jesus. The Holy Spirit chose to use Peter and John in that moment. The Holy Spirit chose to use the apostles in the beginning to do all these amazing things. But it was through the will of God and the choice of the Holy Spirit to use them to do that. And he can do the same through us at any time he wants to. It's not up to us. And we can't go and just say, yeah, but I want that. I want to be able to go heal people, so I'm just going to go meditate for as long as it takes till the Holy Spirit comes. And that's not how it works. We obey Christ. We follow him wherever he leads us to go. And if he chooses at some point to do something incredible like that through us, then he does it. And it has nothing to do with us. So then we would say, hey, it's not me. I mean, God, Jesus is the one doing this. It's not about me. So why did he choose to do it that day? Why was that man not healed at any other point? Why did that guy have to stay there for 40 years? Why didn't Jesus heal him? Why didn't the other apostles heal him at any other point? And this is why. Because look what happens. Go to Acts 4.4. Just for you to know, and Pastor Gary's going to preach on this next week, the apostles, Peter and John, get arrested. Because of this miracle, they get arrested. Of course, right? They do something amazing, and just like Jesus did amazing things and got arrested, these guys, they get arrested. And, um, but after they get arrested, it says this in verse 4. But many who heard the message, Peter's preaching, right? When he was standing there preaching to all those guys, what he just preached. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. In other words, about 2,000 people that day give their life to Christ because of that miracle. Pretty awesome, right? And because of his sermon. Okay, I want to skip forward because I want to get through some of these these amazing things that happened. Go with me to Acts 4.30. Here was the prayer of the apostles when they get, again, they're released from prison. So Peter and John get released from prison. They go back. They join the apostles. They're having this, you know, powwow, and they're, they're praising God. And here's their prayer. This is the prayer of the apostles. They say this. They're saying, God, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. Praise God. Do you see what they're asking for? They're asking for God to do these signs and wonders through them in the name of Jesus so that Jesus will be glorified and people will believe their message. That's what they're praying. Okay, go with me to Acts chapter five. And I know I'm skipping around here, but there's a point, trust me, we'll get there. In Acts chapter 5, we see another move of the Spirit. The Spirit throughout the book of Acts, it could be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit if you wanted to, instead of the Acts of the Apostles. That First of all, that's a title that was given by people. It wasn't given by God. God didn't inspire the title of the Acts of the Apostles. That was given later on, right? Luke just wrote this. But it could be the Acts of Jesus or the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because that's who's doing the work, right? Okay, when the Holy Spirit moves, it's not always 
in a way that we would call good. And this is an example. Sometimes he moves in a way that's very difficult for us to understand and even accept some of us. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. If you remember, guys, um, at, you remember at the end last week of my preaching, I said, and everyone was selling their properties, and, and they were bringing the money and laying it at the apostles' feet, and everyone had one heart and mind. Remember that? Okay, so we're in that context. Stay in that context. Now, Ananias, again with, with his wife, Sapphira, which I, I spelled wrong up there, should have another P, I apologize, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest to the apostles and laid it at their feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before you sold it? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to humans, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and he died. At great fear seized everyone who heard what happened. And then some young men came forward and they wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. And then three hours later, his wife comes in. She didn't know what had happened. And Peter asked her, hey, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yeah, that's the price, she said. So Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they're going to carry you out as well. At that moment, she fell down and died. And young men came in. They found her dead. They carried her out. They buried her next to her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and everyone who heard about those events. We read that. We might be like, whoa. <laughs> well, these people, I mean, they still sold some property and brought some money to you. <laughs> and they died now. What's, why, God? Why this reaction? What was the, why did the Holy Spirit react in such a way? I mean, did they deserve to die for what they did? I know people that do way worse and sell property and bring part of it to somebody. And I don't want to get into too much depth because we don't have that much time. So I, I can't really get into it because today we're focusing on the displays of Christ's power of the Holy Spirit. But let's just real quick look at what happened. These two people, for whatever reason, we don't know their reasoning. The Bible doesn't say it. Maybe they wanted to get in good with the apostles. Maybe they just wanted to look good in front of everybody. I don't know. Maybe they wanted a position of power. It doesn't say but whatever the reason, they lied. And when they lied to the apostles, the apostles were full of who? The Holy Spirit. So when they lied to the apostles, they lied directly also to the Holy Spirit, right? Who was filling them. The only thing I can think of personally to under, help me understand this is Christ could not allow, the Holy Spirit chose, God chose to not allow lies to be the foundation of his church. It's the beginning of the church. It's starting to grow, barely. I mean, we're in the first baby stages of the church, and he is building a foundation through the apostles, and he's inspiring them and anointing them. They're doing these amazing things, and they're bringing people in, and he, they're teaching these people, and they're just starting to build the foundations of what's going to be a worldwide event of spreading the gospel around and if lies were built into the fabric of that, that'd be a problem. And the Holy Spirit knew it. 
He said, we got to deal with that. we got to deal with it. And we need to deal with it publicly. Because great fear will seize everybody. And it will remind them and us, God is holy. And he is righteous. And his church should be holy and righteous. And these are the leaders starting it off. And so we're going to start it off strong and build a solid foundation. That's what I think. Now, the point is this, though, guys. The Holy Spirit was the one who moved in that. So the Holy Spirit can heal, but the Holy Spirit can also deal with stuff, right, if it needs discipline, and he did. Okay, let's read on. Verse 12. I'm still in that same chapter. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, the apostles, even though they were highly regarded. People were like, wow, they're awesome, but I don't want to go hang out with them. They kind of freak me out. Like, look what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. So, love you guys, but I'm good over here. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on bed so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Amazing things were going on. Man, I just can't even imagine that picture of what it must be like for Peter's shadow to be going by and leprosy gone. You know, like, wow. Such a move of the Spirit. We see it later on in Acts. Uh, Paul, right, who we'll learn about, you know, becomes an apostle. And he is so powerful, again, through the Spirit moving through him so mightily. It says in Acts chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. Like napkins and stuff that he touched. They go and give it to somebody who's sick and healed. Amazing, right? Such power through the Spirit. Okay, go with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verse 32. Let's start there. As Peter traveled about the country. Okay, one thing I have to mention. Persecution comes. Pastor Gary is going to be teaching on that. And because of persecution, the church gets scattered. Now, the apostles, they kind of stay in, in Jerusalem. But the rest of the church scatters all over the place. Peter chooses also to go and, and do evangelism. So Peter, now I'm in verse 32. Peter traveled about the country. He went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. Uh, there he found a man, a man named Aeneas, or Aeneas uh, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. And immediately he got up. That's awesome. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him. And what did they do? They turned to the Lord, it says. At this point, guys, I said persecution's happening. Uh, Lydda is about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem, okay? So he goes up about 25 miles northwest, and then he goes over to a place called Joppa, which is kind of a straight shot towards the Mediterranean Sea from there. And so in Joppa, it says, verse 36 is where I am now. Um, so I'm in Acts 9, 36, and if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, and she was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and she died. And her body was washed and was placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard about Peter, that he was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please, please come at once. 
So Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room where this, young, where this woman was. All the, win, all the widows stood around him. They were crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Tabitha had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them out of the room. He got down on his knees, and he prayed, and he turned towards the dead woman. He said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and he presented her to them alive. And this became known all over Joppa. Of course it would. And many people believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Incredible miracle. Raising a woman from the dead. Awesome. We have to think about this question. Why? Why was this happening? Why was the Spirit moving like this? It would be, how many would like to see a miracle like that? I would. Peyton, when you were doing your mission, wouldn't you have loved to see a dead person like open their eyes and get up and be like, I'm back. I'm back. I would, I, I would be, love to see, they'd be amazing. So why were they happening? What was the purpose? I want to take you back again to this concept when it said, and Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by signs and wonders and miracles. Signs and wonders were to be a proof and evidence that Jesus is indeed who he says he is, the son of the living God. And these apostles were chosen by him to start the church and they had a message. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He's not dead anymore. You all saw him crucified, right? Everyone would say in the, in the crowd that was there, yeah, we saw him crucified. He's back. He's risen from the dead. And people are like, well, how can we believe you? And then Peter raises a, young, a woman from the dead, and people are like, I think he's telling the truth. I think, that's, I think they're telling the truth. Miracle after miracle. It was to prove, in a sense, of who they were. But I want to ask this question. It, has to, it must make us ask this question. So why doesn't God just keep doing these miracles right now? Does God want people to believe in Jesus? Of course he does. He says he doesn't desire that any should perish. So why doesn't God just do, I tell you what, why doesn't he just drop his anointing right now on all of us by the Spirit, and we just go and we just heal everybody we come into contact with? Why doesn't he do that? Wouldn't the name of Jesus be glorified? Wouldn't people be like, wow, let's all believe in Jesus? Well, let's think about that. How many miracles do you think Jesus did? We could say a lot. We don't know the number. Do you know why? Because John even says, if everything was written that Jesus did, all the books in this world would not be able to contain what he did. He did so many miracles, so many things. He said so many things, did so many awesome things. All the books in this world couldn't contain him. And when he died, how many people were faithful to him at that point? Around 120, about. Plus 11 disciples and one who betrays him and hands him over to be crucified. All those miracles he did resulted in a little over 100 people following him to the end. And the thousands of people that saw the miracles and who followed him for a while, they just followed him while he did miracles, 
left him when he started telling them the truth about who he was. And he said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they said, we're, we're out. And only the few people who were able to understand this thing that he asked Peter, Peter, why don't you leave? Why don't you guys leave? They said, where else would we go? Who else has the words of life? There's something about miracles that impress people. They catch people's attention, but they don't draw people into Christ, into relationship with him. It it works sometimes. And when it works, you see them. They do miracles, and then 3,000 people come to the Lord. Great. They do miracles, and 2,000 people come to the Lord. That's awesome. But at some point, those miracles don't happen. Later on, even in the book of Acts, or as we go through life, we see them decrease. Because, and this is, this is what I hope we can all get a hold of, God's sovereignty understands the hearts of each person. He knows what each of us needs. He knows that if there needs to be a miracle to bring somebody to him and it's going to work and that's going to inspire that person to, I don't know, follow him and be a mighty worker of God, he'll, he, he might do it. But a lot of times, miracles... They, they don't produce what we think they're going to produce. We think miracles will produce these great believers who follow God and are strong in him. But apparently not, because Jesus did it over and over and over and over again. And people still left him. And in fact, they yelled, crucify him. I'm sure some of the people who saw Lazarus raised from the dead were standing there shouting, crucify him when, when it came time. So what is better? If, if, if miracles don't do it, what does it? What's going to draw people into the presence of Christ? What's going to help people grow in, in, in discipleship and following him? And it's love and unity and relationship here in the church. That, to me, is the greatest thing that we can offer people. If God wants to do a miracle, oh, great. Praise God. I'm, I'm all for it. If God wants to raise someone from the dead, I want to be there to see it. But I just know that what's going to change my friend's heart What's going to change the heart of a cousin or somebody else is going to be my relationship with them and me showing them the love of Christ every day. There was one other thing that Betty pointed out to me when I preached to her earlier in the week. I kind of did this message for her and Vivi. And uh, Vivi, you can go get Mike now if you want to, in fact. But um, it was this. Betty said, you know what else those miracles might have served the purpose of at the time? She said, these apostles and believers were about to go through a really, really difficult time of persecution. Pastor Gary is going to preach on that. And maybe the Lord was gracious enough to show them some of these miracles so that when they're going through their persecution, they could look back. But yeah, but do you remember? Remember Tabitha? Right when Peter's arrested and he's there in prison and his, you know, he's, he's on trial, or he's going to be put to death, and he says, but do you remember when Jesus, remember when we raised up Tabitha? Wasn't that amazing? And they're just encouraged by that. That's very possible that the Lord allowed those miracles because the church was about to go through a heavy time of persecution. And I thought that was an important point that, that Bede brought up, and I, I agree with it. I think that could be a reason. But here's our job, brothers and sisters. Our job is this, and I want to end with this. Our call is to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's our call. Our call is not to go out and say, I'm going to go do this, and I'm going to go prophesy. I'm going to go you know, do these acts of healings. I'm going to go be this encouragement over here. I'm going to go do these things. Our 
job is to pray and seek the Lord and say, Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Spirit, lead me. Inspire me and use me. And if that means I need to go lay my hands on this person, I'll do that, God, but you inspire me to do it. I want you to lead me. And the one thing I know he's leading us all to right now, I can speak it with confidence, is love. Love each other. Be patient with each other. Be kind to each other. Forgive each other. When iron sharpens iron and we clash against each other, forgive each other. We're the church, and we're human, and we're going to have problems, but love, grace, mercy, those are the greatest miracles that we can, we can see the Spirit do in us right now. 